you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Live from the Nasdaq market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. A streaming glitch shares of Netflix dropping as its finance chief warns its new ad tier hasn't beefed up its revenues quite yet. Will the company be able to figure out this one piece of the streaming puzzle or are shares in for a permanent chill? Plus, armed and ready, we are counting down to the biggest IPO of the year. What can we expect when armed trades tomorrow? And what kind of precedent will it set for future deals? And later, DC takes on AI, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Sundar Pichai, among the tech execs on Capitol Hill today as lawmakers explore potential regulation of this industry, what they had to say and what they hope to accomplish. I'm Melissa Lee coming live from Studio B at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Bono and Ice and Karen Feiderman, C. Grasso, and our special guest tonight, Lori Calvacina, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Welcome, Lori. We start off with some breaking news on the ARM IPO. Leslie Pickers got the details. Leslie. Hey, Melissa, ARM pricing its IPO at $51 per share. That is at the high end of the range, implying an offering size of about $4.9 billion and a fully diluted valuation of $54.5 billion. All of that according to a source familiar with the matter. Earlier in the hour, we were told that ARM and its advisors were leaning toward a $52 per share IPO pricing, and that was pretty much baked in. But over the course of the hour, with those pricing discussions, ultimately took a more conservative approach at that $51 per share, which is at the high end of the range, but not above it. So $51 per share for this offering. I'm told by a person familiar with the matter that there should be a release out momentarily that says that $51 number. But again, largest IPO uh, in several years, um, and it will be a much anticipated debut when it is listed on the NASDAQ tomorrow morning. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker, again, top of the range. It's already gotten uh, a buy rating from Wall Street. Not really surprising. Mm -hmm. Wall Street loves to jump all over this stuff. New Street uh, initiating it with a buy rating, a $59 price target. Um, what do you think this means for, for new issues in the pipe? Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of clamoring for new issues. We haven't seen that happen uh, before, S specifically with this one. There's a lot of buzz around the semis, there's a lot of buzz around AI. This is not an AI company, and I think that's sort of they're getting thrown into the mix. People are excited, genuinely, genuinely excited about tech. So I think tech, IPO, everything, mixture, it's a confluence of events. So I think it's good for the IPO market. Not necessarily, I wouldn't be jumping on this one right now. I think that IPOs just have the propensity to pop on the day that they, that they come out, which is great. But I think they always recede from there. But it's great for the IPO market. All right, we'll have much more on ARM a little bit later on in the show. Meantime, let's get to Netflix here. Shares getting chilled in a big uh -oh. way. <laughs> get it. <laughs> After a warning from its CFO, the stock dropping more than 5%, closing near the lows of the day. Even as the S&P and NASDAQ posted gains, the drop coming after final 
finance chief Spencer Newman said its ad tier hasn't materially contributed to revenues yet. Newman also lowered margin guidance for the third quarter. Netflix was the worst performer in the Nasdaq 100 today and the fifth worst in the S&P. Shares are still up 40 percent in 2023, but they are down 15 percent from the highs of the year. So in a week where Disney's legacy challenges have been front and center and fears about the bundle are all taking center stage, where do Netflix issues fit into this puzzle? Karen, what do you think? I think, well, Netflix is by far, by far in the strongest position. And so, I mean, you could make a case this is actually a positive in that they can afford to have the ad-supported tiers move more slowly or not gain as much traction. But when you think about Disney just announced right theirs, you have to think that Netflix is going to be as good as anybody at rolling out an ad, to, you know, an ad-supported tier. So uh, it's just Netflix valuation is very high relative to the others. But I think um, it deserves it. It's a premium company. It deserves that. I'm tempted to buy some. I've been waiting and waiting and uh, thought I missed it a couple of weeks ago. So I would be a buyer here. Could it trade lower? Of course. But I think it's, uh, I, I think it's sort of we talk about demand delayed versus denied. I think that uh, de- delayed and they deserve this multiple. Part of this is just a, a mixed problem. Most of the growth comes from international. Internationally, the average revenue per member is lower. And so that's, that's the b- way the business is right now. Yeah, I mean, but you still have the growth. And I think that's really the issue that when it comes down to margin. So I tend to agree with Karen that you probably might want to get in here if you have been wanting to own the stock and really haven't gotten a chance. It's gotten away from you. But it seems like it's basing, and I don't really see a catalyst for a move higher in the near term. And I think that's really why you're starting to see the price action that we saw today, which is essentially the things that we thought were going to be tailwinds, the uh, password sharing crackdown and the ad-supported tier aren't materializing in the way that we expect them to. And so there's likely just going to be a long pregnant pause, if you will. Um, and I think that, you know, you won't have to rush out and buy the stock necessarily tomorrow, but I think it will provide um, an entry point. But with that said, there has been some decent resistance at that four. 50 level. So I would kind of wait for it to establish a price point before jumping in. So I feel like we're hearing the same story over and over and over again when it comes to these mega cap growth stocks, where mm. the fundamental stories are still intact. And as you point out, premium stories, they're very much intact long term, but we have these short term valuation and crowding problems. I feel like we're still very much in the early days of seeing some of that rectified. We just have to let this play out. So I feel like there's longer term opportunity, but shorter term uh, uh, trepidation. Yeah, I mean, to Lori's point, it almost seems like investors got ahead of themselves in the expectations that they had uh, in terms of these these catalysts, like the ad tiers, ad supported tier. It's still there. The story is still there, but it's not happening as quickly as had been anticipated. And that's sort of what. Yeah. And and I think and I think the story was the password sharing. Mm -hmm. And then it was the writer strike. That was a tailwind to it. To Bonowitz's point, we're running into that area technically back from February 2022. But I, I think that we're running out of catalysts to push the, push the market higher there. So I, w- I would be neutral to negative on price action going forward. I do think, though, some of their competitors were weakened by what happened. With Yes. yes. Uh-huh. And so that's important. We talked about them being the beneficiary of consolidation or some just leaving the business. So I think that dynamic is accelerating. Right. And, and the fact that Netflix... And this is going to be a shock compared to what we were talking about you know, way back when, when it was always debt. The problem that Netflix has is debt. That is not a problem with Netflix anymore, and that is a great advantage that Netflix has compared to its competitors. It is well capitalized. The balance sheet is good. Yeah, but I think it would be punished a lot more if you were having stagnant growth or more stagnant growth with that debt load. 
right? So I, I agree, but that sword tends to cut both ways. If you're using debt to kind of propel growth forward, I think it's understandable and investors are willing to tolerate that. If you start to have stagnating growth and you still have a, a more challenged balance sheet, I don't think that the premium val- valuation would hold up the way that it has recently. But that's not Netflix. Right. I mean, that's and not Netflix Netflix. balance sheet is in good shape. It's in good shape at this yeah. point. Yeah, it's, no. ch- it's changed dramatically. Correct. I'm, I'm saying that if that had not been right. the case, this, slow, would, this slowing growth would probably be, be no problem. premium. The other thing that Netflix also, the CFO said, uh, was that they weren't going to pay a lot for, for live sports. That's just mm-hmm. something that they cannot see uh, being worthwhile in terms of how much they would have to spend to get that live franchise, which I thought was interesting. If you look at the Jets game on Monday Night Football, I think that was the largest viewed uh, game on ESPN. So we still are a live TV biased audience, but it depends on we, we don't want to watch it live. We want to tape it. Sports, you have to watch it live. And I think it's only increasing. So I think that could be a mistake for them not to dabble in that area. All right. Well, our next guest has one of the highest Netflix price targets on the street. Let's bring in Evercore ISI's Mark Mahaney. Mark, great to have you with us. Um, what's your perspective on what Netflix uh, guided on today? I think the two negatives were uh, the um, the gra- uh, gradually less than 300 bips of operating margin expansion. This is what the company has done historically, and the CFO went out of his way to say that they're not going to grow at that fast of a clip uh, going forward. So the the most bullish estimates out there would have had that in there. I don't know what the real guidance is, but it sounds like it's maybe two to three points of margin expansion uh, going forward. So there's certainly plenty of levers for that. And then there's a little bit of debate over some of the commentary around pricing or ARPU or what they call ARM, our average revenue per member in the fourth quarter and whether that was a little soft or not. I, I actually thought the language was extremely vague, so I didn't read a lot into that. I think if it's uh, if, if they're going to say something specific, I pay attention to it. If it's vague, I don't. But the, the real key was the operating margin, cautious or slightly less bullish commentary. I, I felt like that that was sort of glass half full, glass half empty perspective. I mean, the CFO was sort of making the point that sometimes you, you don't want to grow at that rate because you want to favor growth uh, as opposed to maximizing margin. So you view it as a negative. Uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of where it, what it means is that there's probably less upside to 20 bucks in earnings in 2025. But that's, that's how I think about it. the streets kind of at 1930. I think bulls, real bulls on the stock are higher than that, higher than 20, probably closer to 21. So maybe you trim down that 21, maybe that low 19s gets trimmed up or something like that. Let me also step back on Netflix. You know, near term, this writer strike, I'm sorry, it's a negative for Netflix. Now it's less of a negative for Netflix than the other streamers of the studios, but it's a negative for Netflix for two reasons. It does create these kind of content holes, these content gaps, and it also pushes out when they can implement the next price increase. And so I, you know, I, I worry about Netflix near term as kind of having a little bit of an air pocket. But longer term, I really like these new uh, initiatives, the paid sharing, which is now well known by the market. But what I think is still underappreciated is the rollout of this ad supported offering. They just took their TAM and they expanded it. It's hard to say by how much. Maybe it's 10 percent. Maybe it's 30 percent. But they took their core product, cut it by 30 percent. That means you're going to get a lot more incremental subs in, in, in international markets. And that's one of the big takeaways from our survey work. So I want to be long for that reason. Mark, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. So I know you've been bullish. You're very bullish now. What do you think is the right multiple for clearly they're number one by a very wide margin. But at some point, things get too expensive. And I'm wondering, did it come down enough to jump in here? I know you have a much higher price target. Yeah. And and, uh, just to put in context, you know, amongst the mega caps, I mean, my favorites here, actually, Uber 
Amazon and Facebook uh, and Meta. I mean, I, I really like these. They've got some nice product cycles with those three names right here, right now. I think you're a little bit further out with Netflix, so it's not a top pick for me. But I think you can look at Netflix really easily, as you can for like the last 12 months. That's when I upgraded it. You can look at it on PE, Gap PE. And if you can do $20 in gap earnings, what's the market going to pay for that? I think the market probably paid 25 times earnings. It's currently paying more than that now. I assume a little bit of a fade in the multiple. But this is a company that's going to give you kind of mid-teens revenue growth, some margin expansion, and they're going to be buying back stock. That gives you kind of this earnings algorithm, if you will, of 20 to 25%. I think the market pays 25 times for that. So I see this path to 500. Does that make it a screaming buy here at 410? No, but somewhere you know, solidly below 400 probably would make it a, a really aggressive buy. What are some of the data points that you look at, Mark, to, to gauge whether or not there will be more trade down or even cancellations for Netflix? As, you know, there's mounting concerns about the consumer. We've heard it from a lot of retailers about the trade down effect. I don't know. Maybe maybe Netflix is like toilet paper. You can't live without it. <laughs> um, but it does seem like, you know, it, <laughs> you're paying for it and you might you might scrutinize what you're paying for in the future. Boy, I, I, there's a lot of things. I, I could hit that a lot of different ways. I'll, I'll just... Um, <laughs> when we do our survey work, you know, what we see is kind of a mature U.S. market. I mean, uh, you know, you see the satisfaction scores are lower in the U.S. than they are in international markets. The indications of churn are higher. I just think you've got 80 million users of Netflix in the U.S., 80 million households. So you've got the major vast majority of the households. The growth has to come in international markets. So that's where we do all this survey work. What I'm seeing, what we're seeing so far is that kind of the pushback on the on the implied price increase, which is really what, you know, Pat, the paid sharing crackdown was, the kind of the, the cancel rage is starting to come down. And then we look at these markets like Mexico or Japan or Germany or the UK, satisfaction rates are, are higher. And it's in partly because I just think there's less uh, at-home entertainment options if you leave the U.S. That doesn't hold for every market, I know. But for the vast majority of markets, it does. And that's where the secret sauce is for Netflix. And then you layer in these lower price points, the ad-supported offering. I just think there's another leg of growth here to Netflix. And I'll throw one other idea by you, which is that we haven't had a mega hit out of Netflix in the last, I don't know, 12 months or something like that. Like, when's our next Squid Games? But you know what? Netflix is a hit factory. I don't know what the next hit is, but they've got so many shots on goal that every 12 months or something, you know, we're going to find something really exciting that just blows out through the zeitgeist. So I just want to be long in front of that, too. Yeah, and it doesn't matter where, I mean, the writer strike doesn't impact that, right? I mean, Squid Games came uh, from South Korea. So, Mark, good point on that. Thanks so much for joining us. We do appreciate it. Always good to get your perspective. Thanks. Mark Mahaney. Um, so in terms of the, the, the big tech stocks, Laurie, do you view them as defensive, the ones that are executing, the ones that people love, the ones that are in the top, you know, whatever, of, of tech stocks? There's somewhere in between defensive mm -hmm. and cyclicality. You typically want to own these stocks when economic growth is sluggish. And unfortunately, I think that's the price we pay for having a short, shallow or skipped recession. And I'm actually still overweight the tech space, even though I think there are tactical problems with the growth trade we've got to go through. And one of the reasons I'm reluctant to drop that overweight, you know, for just sort of a short term trade is because I do think the economic environment is not going to be that fabulous for a couple of years or so. So I think people, you know, you've got to let this play out. You've got to let the valuations correct. You've got to go through, you know, some of these glitches in the narratives, and then you're going to want to own them for the longer term. And I think, you know, GDP is still expected to be less than 2% for the next couple of years. So you've got some time you're going to want to be in these things. All right. We've got a news alert here on the UAW negotiations. Phil Abo's got the details. Phil. Listen, I'm going to show you what's going on right now. UAW President Sean Fain is holding one of his regular Facebook Live 
broadcasts, if you will. It's not a broadcast, but it's on Facebook Live, where he updates the membership about where things stand uh, with the negotiations with the big three. Remember, we are just over one day away from the deadline of 11.59 p.m. Thursday night, and Sean Fain has been very clear. In fact, we talked with him on Squawk Box this morning. If there is not an agreement, they're not just going to extend these contracts, as they have sometimes done in the past. There will be strikes. And where might they strike? Increasingly, it looks like they're going to do targeted strikes. Targeted strikes would mean that you have fewer members of the UAW who go on strike. But if you hit a key place, like a transmission or an engine plant, and three really stand out for the, uh, the big three, you're talking about Ford's uh, engine and transmission plant on, in Livonia, right outside of Detroit here. GM has a transmission plant in Toledo. And then you've got the Stellantis transmission and engine facilities down in Kokomo, Indiana. Stellantis, by the way, within the last hour, releasing a statement saying our focus remains on bargaining in good faith to have a tentative agreement on the table before tomorrow's deadline. The future of our represented employees and their families deserves nothing less. As you take a look at shares of Ford, GM, and Stellantis, and all of them, by the way, have been moving a little bit higher, not a lot, but a little bit higher over the last couple of days, as uh, some investors believe that we are close to seeing the bottom in terms of an impact, even if there is a strike. Now, if it's a long-term one, it's a far different story. Keep in mind, when you look at those engine and transmission facilities, Melissa, you're looking at maybe 12,000 workers, maybe 12,000, not just at those facilities, but who are uh, part of engine and transmission production, but they could have a huge impact in terms of shutting down the broader companies. How, how long do, does the, I don't know, how long did, can it go on, the, the strike at the transmission plants, um, before it affects other, you know, manufacture the entire Final assembly? vehicle? Day, yeah. in, in a day like or a two. Day? Day okay. or two. In the, this day and age with just-in-time manufacturing, oh. yeah, it won't take long. All right. Phil, thanks. You bet. Phil LeBeau. How important is this, Karen, to GM? Uh, I think it, clearly it's weighing on the stock. Is it fully priced in? I kind of hope so. It's the expectation now, I think, right? More likely than not, we are going to see a strike. I think it just depends on how the duration of the strike more than how, how, what they end up paying ultimately. Yeah. Although part of it, and we'll get to the airlines later, part of AAL's American Airlines mm-hmm. uh, guide lower was the labor, labor costs associated with the pilots agreement. Absolutely. Yeah, it, this, this is a problem that you have with GM, both GM and Ford. And if you look at it as a whole, as Adam Jonas did, it's not a lot of money when you look at it on a percentage over global labor costs. But it's still an overhang for the stock that you don't get with a Tesla or a Rivian. And if you look at the one month and three month performance for GM, Tesla, Rivian, you can see why Rivian and Tesla have outperformed. Coming up, shares of Moderna getting a booster shot today. The stock rising as the company proves it's about more than just the COVID vaccine, what the CEO had to say about the drug maker's next big thing. But first, you're looking live at Capitol Hill, where top tech titans took center stage to talk everything AI and regulation. A top meta executive joins us for the TikTok on what happened. Much more Fast Money in two. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor.
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. I think the probability of there being some sort of AI regulatory agency that stands on its own, similar to the FAA or FCC, is likely at some point. You think so? I think so. Um, now, the, the, the reason that I've been such an advocate for uh, AI safety in advance of sort of anything terrible happening is that I think the consequences of AI going wrong are, are severe. Um, so we have to be proactive rather than reactive. That was a stern warning from Elon Musk on what could potentially go wrong with AI. He spoke with our Eamon Javers today as top tech titans met with lawmakers on Capitol Hill to discuss the future of the technology and potential regulation. For more on what's ahead for AI, let's turn to Eamon, who's with Meta's president of global affairs, Nick Clegg. Eamon. Hey, Melissa, that's right. I'm with President Global Affairs of Meta, Nick Clegg. And Nick, you just emerged from this meeting and just a few steps from where we're standing here. Uh, you told me just before we went on the air that there were some surprising conversations between the tech CEOs in that room. Tell me what happened behind closed doors. I think first it was a pretty sort of new precedent to have so many different co companies who, you know, in their day jobs are competitors with each other, sitting around the same table, not just amongst themselves, but with um, obviously politicians, senators, uh, and folk from civil society. Some are more pessimistic about AI, others are more optimistic. But I think everybody recognizes that this is um, a foundational technology. It's not like a, it's not a new app, it's not a new piece of hardware. This will pervade everything. This will affect and touch every single aspect of our lives over time time and therefore if you want to do anything about it, if you want to get the best out of it while mitigating against the worst, you've got to do that together. And I think this is this is an important process because everyone's trying to kind of feel their way to work out where the guardrails should be, where the regulation should play a role. So what was the most surprising thing that happened in that room between some of the I mean you had Mark Zuckerberg, obviously your boss, uh, we had Elon Musk, we had Bill Gates, we had some titans in that room. Yeah, I think the I think the most striking thing is everybody recognizes that the U.S. is in the lead. The U.S. is clearly in the lead. These big American companies have got the, the, they've got the finance, they've got the data, they've got the computing power, they've got the data to build these large language models, and they're doing so with far greater innovation than anywhere else in the world. So then the question is, how do you maintain American leadership? And one thing that certainly you know people like us at Meta and many others around that table feel is that the more you can, you can not always, sometimes it's not sensible to do so, but the more you can share that technology, the more you can open source it so that people start operating on the, on the kind of standards and values that you've you've enshrined in that technology, the better it is for American leadership going forward. And we were told that Mark Zuckerberg made that point in the room about open source. What else does Zuckerberg tell that group? Well, I think that we, you know, we have to recognize that if you want to in innovate safely, um, actually doing it openly is the best way that you can get you know, researchers and others to stress test the, the, the models that you're producing. So for instance, not only Meta, but many of those, those companies in that room, we'd all submitted our latest large language models to DEF CON in Las Vegas right. a few weeks ago so that hackers could try and kind of do their best or rather do their worst to try and break the systems and stress test them. So through that kind of process, that culture of open innovation, of which there's a great long kind of American tradition 
you actually make the systems not only more ingenious and cutting edge technologically, but you make them safer as well. Do these tech CEOs get to spend much time with each other like they did today? I mean, it seems like they're all embedded in their own silos. They've got enormous staffs around them, entourages everywhere they go. Do they get to do this kind of face-to-face -face interaction? No, not that much. Of course yeah. they see each other and they see yeah. each other at conferences and meetings and so on. But I, you know, I, I think it was a pretty unusual thing. And it was particularly unusual that it's not just the tech CEOs being uh, brought together, but also um, you know, folk from very different perspectives, from civil society and so on, and of course uh, leading leading senators. I think that, that, that was unusual and it's the, it's the kind of right approach at this early stage. Because if you're gonna, you know, if, if senators are gonna regulate, they need to they need to be quite um, open in, in receiving input about where they should regulate. Right. I think Melissa Lee back in studio has got a couple of questions for you as well. Melissa, go ahead, take it away. And, and Nick, you're speaking from a position of, of power, basically. I mean, you're one of the biggest tech companies in the United States. Do you think that if there were a social media regulatory agency, standalone agency at the time that Meta was Facebook and was, you know, being created, that we would have these social media, be, you know, giants today in the United States? You know, obviously the criticism of all of this is that it will prevent the next big AI company, and that could be a startup that may not exist right now, from actually coming to market. Yeah, I think that's always the danger of over-regulating or regulating too kind of preemptively, is that in fact what you end up doing is you, you just benefit the incumbents and you create kind of um, advantage for, for, for the big companies that are already uh, moving forward and you make it harder uh, for new entrants and new competitors to, to challenge them. It, it's what some people call sort of you know, regulatory kind of capture. That's always the, 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 the danger. But I think in, in this area now, you've got a number of American companies who are innovating in their own kind of slightly different ways, but all in the same direction, which is developing these generative AI tools. They're doing it in a, in a much more ingenious way than anything you can see in China or the, or, or, the, or, 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 the, or the European Union at the moment. So the question is, how do you continue with that tradition of great, well-beating American innovation? Uh, my view certainly is the more you do that by sharing the technology so that more and more people actually use it, the more you're not giving it away, you're actually entrenching the, 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 the values that, that, that have made American, uh, the American tech sector so strong. What Nick, is the fear? So what is I really appreciate you. it. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, Melissa's got one more question. Go well, ahead, it was, Melissa. It was sort of a, a, a for fun question, Nick, but I'm wondering, you know, if you've had the conversation with, with Mark about what is the scenario, the realistic scenario today that frightens him about AI. Is there something in particular that, that sort of keeps him up at night, so to speak? I think if these AI systems, and it's a big if, if these AI systems become so powerful that they develop a kind of autonomy of their own, a kind of mind of their own, that they can you know, replicate themselves, they can exfiltrate data, I think then we're in a completely different kind of ball game. Because at the moment, these AI systems, they're powerful, but they're basically pattern recognition systems. They don't, they don't, they're, not, they're not like robots with glaring red eyes. They don't, they don't have any personality themselves. I think if you get to that, what some people called artificial general intelligence, then I think everyone accepts you're in a different ball game and you need to have proper scrutiny, proper controls, and, and, and proper surveillance of those, those very, very powerful systems if they emerge in the future. Well, Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Really thank appreciate you. your time here thank today. You. Thank you. Melissa, send it back over to you. All right. Thank you, Eamon. Thank you, Nick.
That's a frightening scenario. Yeah, I was say, that's not fun. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And that's that's precisely what Elon Musk specifically is afraid of when these machines really start thinking like humans. Um, that's that's when it gets scary. Well, he, he mentioned kind of like blocking and pattern recognition. And if you mm. kind of like compare this to chess, it's similar with the AI there, right? You see, you have a ton of scenarios that you run through and they're essentially able to do analysis and see what's the probability of X, Y, Z happening. Being able to actually operate independently and form thought, opinions, things of that nature, I think is very terrifying. Um, I think ultimately what it's going to come down to is finding that right balance between uh, the dynamism needed because we truly don't know what the parameters are around AI. And so having the regulatory bodies really understand how these things operate and kind of building that, that structure around it, but also allowing enough wiggle room so that you don't stunt growth and innovation. Does this all come down to NVIDIA still wins? I think so. <laughs> right? It's not going to be impacted, theoretically, by this regulation. AI will con continue to march forward, and chips will be needed. Chips will be, will be needed. Computing, yeah. Yeah. exactly. Power, power will be needed. needed. Yeah. Yes. And they're the only ones who are monetizing it now to begin with. But when you, that was a really prescient call that you made that the ones that are sitting in that room are trying to make the regulation that will actually foster <laughs> their further success going forward. So it's, it's like a billionaire. Every billionaire I know wants to pay more in taxes. But they don't remember when they were not a billionaire and they were struggling. They wanted to pay the least amount of taxes. Meta, it's still Meta's game to win. That's why the stock is up 153% year to date. Coming up, it wasn't just temperatures rising in August. Energy prices driving inflation to its highest print of the year. What it means for the market and the Fed, plus all eyes on ARM. We're diving deeper into the biggest offering of the year and taking a look at the other opportunities in the IPO market. You're watching Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. Back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Investors digesting a hotter-than-expected CPI report this morning. The consumer price index rising 0.6% in August, its biggest monthly gain on the year. Stocks holding up fairly well after the numbers crossed, but losing steam throughout the day. The Dow falling 70 points, the S&P up a tenth of a percent, and the Nasdaq climbing nearly three-tenths of a percent. Some big names trading near record. Shares of Amazon trading at a 52-week high, while Walmart hits an all-time high. And a look at Starbucks, the company announcing former CEO Howard Schultz is stepping down from its board of directors, shares off after hours, after hours lows, but is still lower. What was your um, impression of CPI? So our economists said this didn't really change the narrative for them with regards to the Fed. And I do think there had been, you know, I know it was technically hot, but there had been a lot of understanding that energy prices were going to contribute to some pressure here. And that's absolutely what you saw with the motor fuel component and then also the various transportation related uh, gauges popping. So, you know, it, I think the headline was maybe not so great. And, you know, in terms of the news stories that were written, but I don't think there was any fundamental surprise for most equity people and the market took it in stride. Walmart all time high. Is it expensive at this point? Yes, it is, actually, right, particularly if that, I mean, on the one hand, they're the beneficiary of that consumer trading down, and right. it helps their business, but it is kind of high. Um, you know, I'm long target and short Walmart, but um, 
One other thing, though, about this CPI, I always find it so interesting that they take out things that, why would you take that out? Yes. You actually need to live. Yes. Like and so and how energy. is that really an indicator of measure? Because they're yes. always supposed to be transitory until they're not transitory. Uh-huh. But what, then anything in there that gets hot becomes a transitory thing? Yeah I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I always find it. But this has right. been the game for a really long time, and I sure. don't think it's going to change. But it's, I always find it a little ridiculous. Coming up, turbulence ahead. American Airlines slashing profit expectations for the quarter will take you inside the numbers and tell you how much more altitude options traders think this name could lose. But first, all eyes on ARM shares set to make their NASDAQ debut tomorrow. How will investors look at the stock and what they might expect from other IPOs this year? Stay tuned. Welcome back to Fast Money. As we told you at the top of the hour, Arm Holdings pricing its IPO at $51 a share at the top end of its expected range. This puts Arm's valuation at more than $54 billion and sets the chip designer up to be one of the biggest market debuts in years. Our Leslie Pickers here with the very latest. Leslie. Hey, Mel. Arm pricing its IPO at $51 per share. That's the high end of the range. It had been considering an above-range price, and earlier we said $52 would be it. They have finalized pricing at $51. A press release was sent out just moments ago detailing that $51 per share pricing. And at that price, SoftBank is generating about $4.9 billion in proceeds from this offering, and the valuation is $54.5 billion on a fully diluted basis, as you mentioned earlier. Now, that's about 100 times last year's earnings, more than double the relative value to other chip designers. And in chatting with investors, there's been kind of a mixed reaction here, partly due to that valuation, the risks surrounding the overall size of the deal, the subdued performance of other SoftBank-backed IPOs, the potential overhang from secondaries. Those are additional share sales that could come down the road as SoftBank continues to sell down its stake. And then, of course, there's the obstacle arm faces to be added into the major indexes, which can oftentimes be a, a nice tailwind for new issued companies. Now, there are some cornerstone investors here, NVIDIA, AMD, Apple, Intel, Google, and Samsung. Each have indicated interest in buying about $735 million total worth of the float. That leaves about $4 billion for everybody else at that $51 price. The shares will be listed on the NASDAQ under the symbol ARM. They're expected to make their debut tomorrow, Melissa. Leslie, thanks. Leslie Picker. Our next guest is urging investors to be cautious before buying into ARM's debut. Jonathan Morgan is a global deals analyst at the Edge Group. Jonathan, great to have you with us. You actually say um, that ARM could suffer the same fate as Uber, which is not a good one. It, it peaked and then it took a long time for it to recover back to it near its IPO price. Why do you think it could follow the same pattern? Yeah, so I think for us, we're looking at this uh, IPO coming out tomorrow in two different phases or two takeaways. One, a lot of the IPOs, or most of the IPOs, I should say, have been reduced to selling the company at its highest possible price. Uh, so, you know, raising as much capital as possible, making as much money for the owners. And for us as uh, retail investors and your investors on this show, that doesn't sound like a great investment you want to get in uh, on day one. So there are going to be uh, certain hurdles around that. So you mentioned Uber. Um, being a situation where it took a while for it to even come climb back to its IPO price. Uh, Lyft is another one. Rivian, I don't think it's even recovered since its uh, recent listing. So that's a reason why there is a, a, a pause to be cautious on day one for this stock. And, and the second takeaway, I mentioned there are two takeaways, is that from what I'm hearing from speaking to our clients, 
there is an appetite for new big situations on the market. Um, so yes, you, you hence why this is uh, so uh, oversubscribed at the moment. But uh, you probably might be surprised to hear, but we're covering uh, all listings, uh, even spinoffs. And there's going to be about eight global spinoffs taking place just in the month of October. So hence, we're re saying uh, remain cautious. There's going to be more opportunities to look at uh, interesting companies coming down the pipe. How do you how do you think about the ARM IPO being an IP, a barometer for other new issues? It's a very sort of specific situation where SoftBank still owns 90 percent of the company. It had been public before, taken private, now public again um, versus, you know, a new issue that is a company that's never been public, that has, you know, experienced just basically from the startup phase to to issuance. So from our standpoint, I think we are looking at it just purely on the um, guarantee to sell uh, you know, market up uh, in terms of the valuation standpoint. So I think from our standpoint, we are going to see more IPOs because of the appetite of the market. Uh, so recently, while yes, this is going to be a very first issuance uh, with IAC and Truro, that was canceled last in 2022, but they're now looking to bring that back up to the market. I think there is some parallels between what we're seeing with the spinoff market, um, where there was only one really big uh, listing uh, throughout the whole year, above 10 plus billion. And now that you're seeing names like uh, Arm coming out at 50 plus, um, you are going to see more issuance uh, coming down the pipe. So which ones are you looking in the pipe as the next ones? You know, we should sort of compare it to how well Arm did. So I would I would say in terms of some of the larger names coming up, uh, as you as you mentioned, um, we like newly listed companies. So on the spinoff front, uh, Danaher, you know, 190 billion dollar company, uh, they're looking to spin off their water quality and product identification business. That's going to be roughly we value that around 17 to 18 billion market cap on listing. That is going to be determined by the market what price is going to be listed at versus uh, the IPO uh, market where there's one price and one buying, there's no averaging down. So we will see a uh, when issue trading taking place end of this month. Uh, it will list uh, early October, October the 2nd. That's one we like a lot, um, especially since the, uh, the value creation that the Rails brothers have done at Danaher. Uh, and of course, th that's those eight situations I mentioned in October doesn't even include 3M and GE coming up towards the end of the year. So that's where we're saying our, we believe if investors should be spending a lot of their time at this point. So remain cautious. You could look at ARM in the next couple of months outside of this IPO. All right. Jonathan, thanks so much for being with us. Jonathan Morgan. I think that's an interesting, you know, point of view in terms of, you know, SoftBank owns 90 percent. It is in their interest to sell at the highest price possible. To mark the rest. Yes, exactly. Uh -huh. Right. I would think. I guess. But isn't that, I mean, it's really where they ultimately exit it that, that matters, though, right? Although I do think this creates an overhang, right, to have this very large investor and multiple, actually, large mm. investors who one day will, you imagine, do a secondary. Right. Oh, true. Yeah, I think the fact that SoftBank is a lead is, is one thing that like definitely raises eyebrows. And then you just think about what's happened with, with valuations in the VC and private equity space, early stage or growth stage space, uh, over the last, I don't know, year, 16 months. I think it is very much in their interest to try to return the fund. They're being squeezed. You've, you've got to make capital outlays. You've got to invest in new companies. 
I tend to agree with him, right? I'd probably be a little bit cautious given where we are on the economic cycle and essentially what are the reasons behind why you'd be pushing for a higher price. And I think there is a liquidity crunch, maybe not uh, globally and worldwide, but definitely within that particular pocket. Coming up, fasten your seatbelts and return your trade table to its upright position because shares of American Airlines losing serious altitude today. The details on what is sending shares to a ground stop next. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. A bumpy ride for shares of American Airlines today. The carrier dropping nearly 6% after slashing third quarter profit estimates due to higher fuel and labor costs. American now expects margins to come in at around 2.5%, down from earlier estimates of between 4 and 5%. Spirit, Alaska, Southwest have also cut estimates for the quarter. Those stocks all in the red today. We've heard it again and again. You you say this sometimes when the stocks go down for the same reason over and over again. Right. It seems like it that does. is happening here. Yeah, because some of the dynamics are so important to each of them, right? right. There's, it's, so, yeah, they keep doing that, and it doesn't seem like the jet fuel situation is getting any better right now. The other night I was wondering, oh, well, maybe they're hedged. Americans not hedged. United is not hedged. Delta does have the refinery, but... Um, it doesn't seem to be getting better. It can't be better from the numbers they're putting out, right? Yeah. It's up since then. Yeah. Uh, Lori, how do you think about this? So this was a group. We track, you know, 60 different industries in mm-hmm. the Russell 3000, just the rate of upward revisions as a gauge of kind of froth and sentiment or extreme, you know, kind of pessimism. And the passenger airlines group was looking extremely frothy earlier this year. And we've just seen that revision indicator go from extreme exuberance just right back down to pessimism again. You're not mm-hmm. quite back to typical troughs. Um, but it's just been dramatic to me how sudden this has been. And I, I find it interesting, you know, people have been, you know, so worried about inflation, resurging in part because of energy coming up. Why wasn't this more on people's radars? I'm a little bit confused. Because you had revenge travel, and I think that's coming to the end of it, too. Yeah, but at the end of the day, it's about how much you earn, not just how much revenue you take in. Mm. Option traders (laughs) are betting American could lose even more altitude through the end of the year. Mike Coe has the action. Hey, Mike. A uh, traded about four times its average daily options volume, put significantly outpacing calls by about two to one. One of the trades I was looking at, the December 12-10, one by two put spread, somebody paid uh, about 14 cents to buy 2,700 of those DEC 12s, sell 5,400 of the DEC 10s. That's targeting that $10 strike price, a decline of about 25% in the next three months. All right. Thank you, Mike. For more Options Action, tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, Moderna shares getting a shot in the arm thanks to a promising flu shot trial results. Uh, we'll dive into whether this tape topper is the cure for your portfolio. And here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is chatting exclusively with the CEO of Williams-Sonoma. Catch the full interview, top of the hour on Mad Money. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Moderna topping the tape today, jumping more than 3% as it uh, shows that it's got more than just a COVID jab. The drug maker announcing its experimental flu shot showed a stronger response than the current vaccine in late-stage trials. And Moderna CEO Stefan Bancel announcing even more products are in the pipeline. We are announcing today that by the end of the year, we'll also be in a phase-free lung cancer. So think about it, given the early phase one data we had in lung cancer as well, we're going to go straight to phase three because Merck and us believe that this should really be additive, like we saw in melanoma. And we're going to keep rolling out and announcing more and more tumors after which we're going to go after. 
All this after the CDC greenlit updated COVID vaccines from both Moderna and Pfizer. The price action in the stock was very interesting because at the highs it was up more than 8 percent, I think almost 9 percent, and then went down to a gain of 3 percent, Steve. So, so Moderna has been associated with a COVID uh, vaccine and that they're trying to change that narrative. The company said that the COVID vaccine in terms of revenue dropped by 94 percent last quarter. They have a vested interest in reestablishing what they're there to do. So is it cancer? Is it COVID? Because the population doesn't want COVID anymore. They want cancer treatment. And what they really want is obesity. So if they would have, if they would have, if they would have said that, that we, we have something vaccine. to treat uh, an, an obesity or diabetes, this stock would, would have been up dramatically more. I, I don't, I, if you look at the long-term chart on this, it's been in a declining trend forever. I mean, obesity is to pharma as AI is to technology. Um, but cancer is not too bad if you can develop a cancer vaccine. <laughs> right. All right. You can't really laugh at that, uh, yeah. Bonham. But the, the problem is that there may be a gap in terms of the revenue pipeline because you've got the drop in COVID. And yeah. these other ones are still even the flu, even the flu shot. That still that can, won't be approved till the end of the year or early next year. Yeah, I mean, I think the price of the stock is really telling you that. I think it's off 40% this year. It's roughly a quarter of the of the COVID high, to Steve's point. I think it's really only associated with COVID vaccines. But the thing is, this mRNA technology, to me, is being, being written off. I actually think this is an interesting entry point for the stock. 10 to $15 billion recurring revenue over the next five years, or five years starting forward, I guess, 2025, I think makes for an interesting setup. Up next, final trades. Final trade time, Lori Calvacina. Uh, I like energy here. Earnings revisions are improving. Valuations are cheap, and it's an inflation hedge. Bonoin. Listen, I, I think there's still trouble ahead. This is purely a technical call, but this 50% retracement in our rates makes for an interesting short-term trade. Karen. Yes, IGV. If inflation is a little higher, that means multiples a little lower. That would hit IGV. I'm short. Steve. So my final trade is going to be a would you rather. <laughs> so I love Lily, but I would rather Amgen. So gratuitous. (laughs) Anyway, um, Lori, thank you so much. Lori Calvacino of RBC. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.